welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today we're talking with John Brawley, ACS, the DP of the new film Lakewood, um, with Naomi Watts. John uh, was fantastic to talk to, you know, just kind of up my alley in regards to the right balance of uh, technical and uh, artistic. Um, so we had a really great chat. Uh, he's very um, generous with his knowledge and time. One thing at the head that I think uh, maybe people will be interested in is he shot uh, this film on the Blackmagic 12K. And, uh, you know, people kind of expect most films to be shot on Ari or uh, Red or Sony with the Venice these days. But, um, you know, you don't see a lot of Blackmagic necessarily. Although we had Down with a King, I suppose that counts. But, um, yeah, so he talks about that a little bit as well. So if you're a Blackmagic fan, you'll want to stay tuned for that. But... Uh, that's all for the intro. As always, I will now be quiet until two seconds from now when I continue talking from the past. And <laughs> anyway, uh, enjoy this conversation with John Brawley, ACS. How did you get started in cinematography? Were you always like a visual guy or, um, you know, growing up, were you, were you kind of in the movies or was it something you kind of came to later? Yeah, I mean, I, from a very young age, I was very into photography. I, I love taking photos. I, I was always interested in lots of things. I, I, I had a little electronics kit. I had a chemistry kit. But photography was like the first kind of hobby as a kid or interest that I had where I didn't get bored, you know. And I, I found there was always kind of new things to try or new approaches to have. And I also really liked the power that having a camera Gave. I mean, I think that it was the first uh, Gulf War was happening. There was all these kind of protests happening back in Australia. And I remember having this camera and being able, this, it sort of gave me, it was like a passport. It gave me permission to approach people. It gave me permission to photograph people. Uh, and also at the time I was uh, doing a lot of live music photography. I mean, I was actually underage, but still somehow getting into a lot of these venues and photographing uh, musicians as well. Um, and, uh, and, you know, then from there, actually, I started doing a little dabbling a bit with lighting and stuff. Uh, so, for, you know, in making images was always something I was very into. Uh, and then when I left high school, I was going to start a, a degree that was a kind of a general media degree. Um, in the end, you would have a teaching qualification that no one uh, has ever heard of called the Bachelor of Education. Um, not that I want to be a teacher, but uh, uh, the first three years was essentially a media degree. And then while I was doing that degree, um, they had a filmmaking component and I shot my first uh, roll of 16 mil uh, film and I was just hooked. I mean, you know, it was reversal. So the film that went through the cameras, what was projected, there was no editing, you just had a, a 100 foot roll, which is three minutes. And you had to shoot this little sequence um, with, with some rules and parameters. And uh, I just loved it, you know, seeing that image projected, sitting in a classroom and there was about 40 students and watching it and feeling the audience be affected by it. That was addictive. So I really got into the idea of cinematography and also photography is a very uh, uh, solitary <laughs> endeavor. Often you're by yourself or you're doing it all by yourself. Um, and I really like the fact that film or television, narrative drama, even event stuff, everything, it, it all involves collaboration with a lot of people. So I, I think I really got into that. So yeah, that was it. I think I didn't even complete that degree. I started, a, I was about 18 months into my, my degree and I was like, I, I got a, offered a job as a best boy on a TV show. And I thought, well, why would I go to college, the university to study what I'm already getting a job? To? I'm going to go and do that. So 
that's what I did. I left uh, left and started uh, started my career that way. And then weirdly, many like twelve years later, I actually went back to school and I went and did my masters without having even done an undergraduate degree. Uh, I went back and did my masters at um, uh, Afters, which is the uh, premier sort of uh, Australian film school. So I sort of did it did it all backwards. Yeah, that's fucking cool. Yeah, I went I went to uh, this thing called New York Film Academy for a summer uh, yeah. program, like six month uh, six weeks. Yeah, when I, right we've between campus, high school, uh, we've got a campus. I think a couple of campuses in Australia too now. So, oh word, yeah, this one was the uh, Universal Studios yeah. one. So that was awesome. It was like an eighteen-year-old uh, being on the Universal Studios back lot, shooting sixteen millimeter. You know, you yeah. have free reign of what it was. It was incredible. But then I went to Arizona State. I feel like I've brought this up every interview um, and learned almost nothing. Apparently, the film school's a lot better now. But when we started it, this, the program had just started. So, th- I mean, in six weeks at, at New York Film Academy, I learned more about yeah. collaboration and lighting and, and just all of it than I did at the f- four years at yeah. ASU. But um, yeah, I think there's a it's a mixed bag with film school. And you know, whenever people ask me about it, I always think the most imp- the best thing about it is usually the um, peers that you have, the other people yes. that you learn to work with, the friendships that you'll make for life potentially people that you're going to have an ongoing working relationship with. And that's where you 12 mean. years later, I'm still friends with all those people. Yeah. And I bet you still make films and do stuff with them. And you know, what, that, that becomes your career, which every you know, day is part of it. And you've got that history of, of a relationship. That's what's great about it. Well, and the nice thing for me too was, uh, so, well, the one note about film school that just for anyone listening is like, if you're going to go to film school, you have to make it work no that don't rely on the professors to teach you anything use that time to like get some people together like you were saying and, and like start making things and learn on your own on your off time and don't sort of get distracted by how fun I college think, is i think it's practice i mean the, when i ended up going back and doing my masters we had a, a great course because it was very practical you know we were literally making there were exercises but you're kind of making a film every week um, yeah. And just the, the practice of doing that, of making mistakes. And when you're in an academic environment too, I think you, you think differently to when you're being paid to do something, you don't take the same kind of risks. So I, yeah. I really did actually enjoy it. I didn't think I would enjoy it, but I actually really did enjoy that. And as somebody, as one of the lecturers there said to me, you know, uh, people don't just get in a plane and fly a plane. You go and do a hundred hours in a simulator and then you do some tandem flying with an instructor sitting next to you. And it's only after you do a thousand hours or 500 hours or whatever that you're allowed to fly the plane by yourself. And it's filmmaking is a little bit like that. I think you've got to learn the craft. You've got to lock, you know, do some log some hours essentially on set just to understand how it works. I mean, of course there's going to be people that are naturally gifted that can just do it straight away. But frankly, you know, that's like 0.001%. Most of us have to, uh, have to learn that stuff um, as we go. And I think the more you practice uh, in a way, the better. And I think film school can be great for that uh, and those and those kind of relationships as well. But it's only as good as what you invest in it yourself. Yeah. And for us, like, you know, being at Arizona State, it was, I don't know if you know the the mm. the type of school it is, but it's known as one of the premier party schools in America. So it was easy to get distracted. Learn how to do some things, just not maybe not the filmmaking part. You know what? Uh my girlfriend marvels at how I'm able to make friends with anybody within seconds. Uh, and that is and that is something that yeah. actually was very valuable. Um but even so like like uh one thing that helped move into Los Angeles was me and all my friends who you know come, came from the film school all moved here. Mm-hmm. So the, there's the hardest thing in the world in LA is just to meet people and make friends especially in a in a working um environment in, in the creative space 
and it's just we all kind of spread off and did our own thing and then we'll come back to meet up you know yesterday i was hanging out with four or five of them and we we're just yeah. talking about you know one of them is a, a podcast producer who works at sony and other ones you know an ad on big commercials and stuff and so we're always just kind of like sharing the the sort of wealth there because it's you know you know that this person isn't full of shit mm. you're like i've seen you yeah. at your worst you know like we're, we're <laughs> this is this is chill yeah. um the one thing I did want to say, though, uh, that you, you mentioned that I thought was actually kind of um, stuck with me uh, is I, I also love photography mm-hmm. and I like that. I didn't realize it until you said it, but I do like the fact that if I'm in a certain mood, I can be collaborative and make films. And if I'm in a different mood or I need to you know, maybe study or think or, or um, kind of reevaluate how I'm looking at light or whatever, Reflects. kick it over to photography. Mm-hmm. Same muscle. Yeah. It does keep you in practice and you know that that's what i really enjoyed was the process of composition of choosing what to point the camera at you know this i love i mean we could have this discussion but you know as technology changes you know iphones are shooting prores and so on and people there's always a kind of fear about technology changing your job or changing the business and it's usually people that are invested in a lot of equipment and i understand it but it's never going to be able to replace you making that kind of those subjective choices about where to point a camera, what to put a frame around, how to expose that, uh, and what the, all of those choices that go into you know making that image. Um, and photography is a great way to exercise that muscle without all the other infrastructure of cinematography that, that goes with that, with, a, with it being a, a huge crew and a bunch of people um, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always a really great um, exercise. And, you know, the funny thing is, is when I started out, I was, I was in, um, uh, uh, started off, uh, it was mostly film, like digital was sort of coming in, but I, I trained in my early days of cinematography on film uh, and I had this uh, ritual or routine of taking photographs still, um, it, firstly with Polaroids, right? So you would take a Polaroid of the image to check your lighting ratios and just kind of look at how things were looking on film. And then that became uh, the early digital cameras. But So we're still shooting on motion picture film, but you take a digital still and you can sort of get a preview of things. So for me, even now, I still take a lot of photos as part of my kind of lighting process. So before I roll on the first take, I usually go in take some photos uh, and it's and it's a great kind of ritual or practice um, to continue, and it's always stayed with me. And of course, I really enjoy photography when I'm not on set as well. But it's it still gives me a lot of pleasure, and it still kind of exercises that muscle. And even even too from a, um, a grading and post point of view, so I often take some photos when I'm testing. And right now, I'm, I'm in pre production for a new series. I'm uh, taking photos in some of our um, proposed sets and locations. I'm playing around with grades and starting to get an idea of how things can look and how things might work. And, you know, it's a great uh, process for that. And it's very, very accessible and very, you know, simple, simple way to keep things, um, keep things kind of fresh in your head. Yeah. Are you still uh, like uh, using meters a lot or are you kind of just sticking to the monitor, maybe taking some test photos and, and uh, uh, that kind of yeah, thing? I mean, I don't, I, I used to do that, have that process. So the digital camera would be a, became a light meter for me. Um, when I was shooting on film, but these days um, with the, the the exposure tools and the cameras now are so good. I mean, I might take a reading. If I take a reading, it's more about measuring the ratio of a key to fill. It's not really what do I set my camera at, you know, that kind of stuff. Better determined, I think, with other other tools. You know, I, I love using false color a lot. Um, oh, yeah. Button to trust that because 
you know, the, the other problem that you have generally on set is a lot of monitors lie to you, you know, and especially if you're trying to monitor a, a HDR image, a lot of them have a HDR badge. It just means that they're really bright. They're not a particularly good monitor usually for critically assessing anything on set, especially because you're moving them around and then the sun comes out and, you know, it's just it's impossible. So, um, you know, I, I, tr I trust the, the false colors because that kind of works no matter what, like any viewing conditions, you can kind of see how it is. And I think that's one of the great things actually I've taken from shooting on film is that discipline of knowing that if you get your, if you middle your exposure, if you, if you, have you done, if you've done your work in prep and you know the camera and you know the range that you can get away with, you don't have to sweat the images on set and try and adjust and grade. You know that you can fix it or, or address those issues later on often or what you need to adjust in terms of lighting on set. So I actually often treat it just like film. I don't really do it. I don't often use a lot of grading time on set. Uh, I don't often use actually a DOT. I'll just kind of treat it like film. I do all my work in pre. I do a bunch of different sequences of tests, get to a look that I really like that is for the dailies. That's kind of 80% of the final grade, depending on you know what the situation is. And then we apply that to the dailies and maybe I'll do some little adjustments here and there as we go. But, you know, once you're up and running, I, I, I would rather shoot it on set take the card out of the camera and it's like a roll of film, you send it to the lab you know, and that happens offset. And if the dailies colorist has any issues or if editorial are worried about something, you know, you can go and address it. But uh, I, I prefer that that routine because you're just spending a lot more time where you should, which is with the director, with the cast, um, doing another setup rather than futzing around inside this tent, trying to create a shot that it, where it's irrelevant anyway, because you know, you don't have the context of an edit you don't have the best uh, monitoring setup, and you don't you're not sitting with your final colorist, so it doesn't make a lot of sense to me in that in that kind of workflow sense to to mess around with a bunch on set. Yeah, the the so I, I'm kind of the same way where I'll just meter the light to kind of like figure out, and and also it's just nice because you can get an idea of what you're doing before without having to set up the camera and like look and then run back That's and right. forth. Yeah. When you first get there, you know, if you've got the lights out and the camera's not out yet, you know, you can roughly see what's going on. Uh, and and go from there and it's, it's good for those kind of situations too yeah the the tool that i've really like I, I recently got maybe like a year ago eight months ago uh was the uh the c800 the Siconic color meter mm -hmm. and i've just been i i am the biggest nerd on the planet man i have yeah. been metering every possible i did a, i wrote an article where i metered every uh light bulb that i could buy at rouse just yeah. to see you know oh, could yeah. you light with these and the answer is not really um, yeah. <laughs> but, but also LED panels, right? Like just LED lighting in general are so yeah. variable and, uh, all, oh, I'm, I'm not a fan of most LED panels. I mean, I own the same light meter and you only have to start, I mean, you can photograph them and, and in, in them and by themselves, they can look fine. Uh, it's only when you compare them to other light sources that you start going, Oh, there's some shortcomings and the meter do tell, does tell you that as well. Once you learn how to read it, it sounds like you invested the time there and I'm the same. I, I, I spent a lot of time in pre-metering different lights. I, I'll check all of, especially the prac lights or work with the production design department. Cause of course, most lights these days come with led bulbs, usually standard. So you usually either trying to change them out for leds that you can accept that are okay, or, you know, ultimately put in, put in some uh, old fashioned tungsten bulbs there as well. Well, that's the problem with living in Los Angeles uh, is in California, you're not allowed to buy regular yeah. tungsten. The one you can get that I found is, <laughs> I know you got, it's ridiculous, but you have to, like, I get it. We got to save the environment. But the only, the only one you can get is the uh, 
oven bulb because the oven oh, bulb okay. can't be plastic. So you can okay. buy oven bulbs, but nice. um, I'll tell you, I'll I, do, I I'd be making, I'd be making a panel of, uh, you know, get, get uh, 48 oven bulb, oven bulb. Oh. I want to see that line. You can, you can build it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the Deacon's ring, but it's just a box of oven bulbs. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, I haven't told anyone this, but I'm actually in the tail. Well, middle to tail end of uh, launching a, a website slash app. Cause my buddy mm-hmm. is smart like that. I just wanted to make a webpage um, where I, so, I, you know, I, uh, Pro Video Coalition that re- uh, releases this podcast is part of a company, uh, Moviola, mm-hmm. uh, and then they own Film Tools. I went over to Film Tools and just metered every single LED panel they had mm-hmm. with the with the thing. I'm, I'm going to kick out all those, or I already did, kick out all of those graphs that you can save with the, yep. the chart. And I'm, yep. the website is going to be where people can compare lights, uh, various lights with that information. Yep. Right. and make more informed decisions on whether or not they're purchasing yeah. or renting. And it's okay. shocking, dude. Like the sky panels are not that good. I know. I, I mean, I hate to say it publicly, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I I would never use sky panels for any kind of key work on someone's face because once you compare them even to other LEDs, but to other lights types like tungsten, for example, is always beautiful on skin tones. Uh, yeah, they, they, they're great for other things, but they're not very nice as a key on a yeah. person's face. It's the spectral output is, is surprisingly bad. And then you've got like newcomers like nan light mm-hmm. and those are actually quite, I mean, uh, you know, some of them are just like, they, they don't have bicolor variability or anything, but yeah. some of those are really, you know, TLCI is really high TM 30s, like dead, you know, super circle. Um, yeah, it's just super surprising how the big dogs are not like Kino actually. Kino has some really good lights too. They're LED. Kino, Kino are very underrated, but I think they're very late to the party. I've, I've used a lot of their stuff. I actually really like the Roscoe DMG. They yes. have very good colors as well. They're probably the best actually. I mean, I haven't tried any of the new, new stuff, but as of like a year ago when I was trying them out, the, the DMGs were very, very good and the Kinos were also very good. Sky panel was like, but you know, you got to remember that it's generational too. I mean, there's sky panels are a few years old now, so they're, they're like, it changes so quickly with, with uh, updates of everything. I think the new DMG stuff now has six colors, six color LEDs in there. So, you know, they're, they're adding and tweaking things all the time as well. Yeah. The, the one, the one, you're hundred percent right. The one thing that uh, I think people need to sort of check themselves on is when they're like, Oh, I don't need to gel anymore because I just dial yeah. it in on the thing. And it's like, but that changes the look of, if you're going to use it as a key light, even as a environment light or something, it, it yeah. really does affect the look of any color. If you're not doing white yeah. light through a gel. The ultimate test too is actually a poor color, uh, sodium. Like if you try and I've never met an LED light yet that can replicate how awful a sodium light is. Right. Sometimes you need to match that color because you're shooting in an environment where those colors exist. If you go to um, uh, Home Depot and buy some of those lights, they're 20 bucks or whatever. I, like, I don't know if you ever metered them or put them into your app, but I recommend that you do this because a lot of the LED lights will have a preset for it it'll never look like it. I mean, nothing looks like as terrible as a, as a true sodium. There's a kind of strange combination of yellow and green that seems to be unreplicatable in any, in any light. And also a lot of the gels, you know, there's some pretty cool gels like urban vapor is very nice um, color, but it's not what sodium is. It's a kind of theatrical interpretation of, of sodium. But if you're trying to 
match that color on set on location with someone who's in foreground and you've got sodium in the background is actually quite hard to do. So the last few shows I've been telling the gaffer, uh, listen, you need to go and buy half a dozen of these sodium lights and we're going to use them. And I have used them like as the key, you know, because there's nothing that kind of matches that color. I, I find it's just uh, unique. And also the way the camera sees that color too, of course, is, is another complication in all of this, uh, which, you know, the meter tells you a lot, but then there's this extra layer of difficulty as well. Yeah. I was uh, literally uh, a half hour ago talking to uh, uh, Kramer Morgenthau about his work on um, the many saints of Newark. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the outdoor scenes in that film because uh, I got to see a screener and uh, he, uh, he said they replaced all the streetlights um, mm-hmm. with cover heads, but then he put uh, uh, park hands there. And I yeah. was like, why, why didn't you go with the vapor? And he's like, yeah, the vapor looks like the way we remember it. But in my head, like old black and white films from the 60s, 70s, the streetlights were white. Yeah. And I was like, oh. That checks yeah. out. Well, I mean, now a lot of those the public lighting is going to LEDs anyway. So even sodium is not what what is used anymore. Right now, it's this kind of weird, anemic, uh, horrible-looking uh, white, but sort of not very nice-looking light. So, you know, I think ten or fifteen years from now, it's going to be quaint using a sodium light because none of the you know nobody will be kind of as used to that anymore because it'll be more like more likely to be LED based. Yeah, I really wish they would like LA is is absolutely full of those bright 6500 k leds mm-hmm. to the point where you drive around at night and you forget that your car's headlights aren't on because it's just so bright everywhere yeah but it's like impossible to sleep now <laughs> and it's just ugly and apparently like the light pollution's gotten nuts but i like why won't they just do tungsten colored why do they have to be i yeah. guess efficiency maybe or something but yeah i don't know maybe they're, they're taking a theatrical uh, leap with some lighting designer there in the it'd be a lot easier for all the filmmakers if you just shot at 6500 (laughs) so go ahead and just the whole city um going back to the idea of photography are you uh do you have like a a a photo camera that you're really into are you still shooting film uh i do a lot you know uh, i i'm just gonna pull out what's here in front of me i've got yep got this little point of shoot film camera oh lovely is that a leica it is yeah it's a little mirror so i've got this this guy every different day of the week and my main main camera of choice is probably one of these guys, one of the M Likers. Nice. Um, I, I love doing, I mean, every day I'll take a different camera to work. Um, but for some reason, I still keep on returning to the range finders. I think just because they're discreet, I can I, I operate a shot and still have it on my shoulder and it's not, not going to get in the way. So, uh, and, and it's funny too, actually. Um, there's a different kind of relationship that seems to happen with the subject when you, I find when you use a rangefinder, I don't know if you've done much rangefinder versus a mm-hmm. SLR or DSLR, and you have this big camera in front of your face, it changes things with a rangefinder, I think, because you um, tend to, oh, let me go this here. Because, you know, the viewfinder's here, uh, your face isn't covered up when you take a picture, and the shutter doesn't black out either. So you also see the moment that gets photographed. Uh, I think it's different. You know, there's just a different energy and a different chemistry, and it's literally reflected in the photos that you take. So I've become more and more aware of process, you know, and how much process on set, and this affects the cinematography as well, the way that you approach, the way that you do the job. It's not just the job, it's the way you... Uh, work on set and the, the kind of environment that you create. And same with photography. I think I think of this kind of rangefinder photography as kind of like the photographic equivalent of slow food. You know, it sort of forces you to 
slow down, take a moment. You have to focus it. You have to expose it. You have to take a picture. And it kind of just changes the dynamic of how you work and also changes the relationship you have with the subject. So uh, it sort of came, you know, I've tried lots and lots of different cameras and I keep on returning to rangefinders because I find I get the most satisfaction from those images. And I, I really think it's actually... It's not the technicality of the cameras. I mean, it's the it's the process that it imposes on you as a, as a in terms of craft. And I think with cinematography, it's the same. You know, your job as a DP, in a way, once you get to a certain level, like ten cinematographers are going to do a great job on a movie. It becomes then, what are the interpersonal relationships? How do you conduct yourself on set? What are the kinds of conversations you have behind the monitors with the director and with your crew? Those are the things that actually make them make the movie. I think you get to a certain point from a technical, you know, competency, um, from an image making point of view. Everyone's kind of on an equal footing in that regard. Creatively, it's, it actually becomes about the logistics and the interpersonal relationships uh, and the process that you establish on set. You know, one of the things I like to do for every new show that I do is try and come up with a manifesto. Um, or an idea of some rules, and the rules can also not so much be about um, lighting or image making, although obviously it's related, but it's often about process. You know, I really love, for example, starting with close-ups before you do the wide shot, which is like mm. ne never ever what the textbooks say you're supposed to do. You're supposed to shoot the wide shots, establish the lighting, let the actors rehearse and get on their game and work out what they're doing, and then you go in and do close-ups. I'm like, yeah, let's let's go the other way. Let's start with the drama first. Let's go into the close-ups, which are the shots you're going to use, because it breaks my heart. A lot of time, actors, they can't help themselves. They'll come out from take one, and they're crying and whatever they're emoting and they're acting. And by the time you get to take six, it's, you know, they're spent, you know. So I, I've found over the years, like, that's a it's a really good idea to start with close-ups. Not always, but, like, you know, it's often often a really interesting way to go. Um, and that's a process, right? That's just the, the sequence of what the way you do things, you know. Um, don't tell anyone, but, you know, I really quite like cross-shooting, which, again, cinematographers are meant to hate. It's meant to be harder to light. Uh, but I love um, enabling actors to be able to overlap each other with their dialogue. Um, you know, I think that's really important, especially I, I've tended to do a lot of comedy over the years. And for comic performance, um, especially too because a lot of times when you're doing um, uh, comedy by the time they've done three or four takes it starts to wear out you know you don't almost don't want them to rehearse or even run the lines in the blocking because you hear it the first time it's always the funniest and you're trying to preserve that and so by cross shooting doing close-ups first for example with comic work you can you can try and um, you know make something happen there and the actors you know usually get into that routine as well and they, they know that they're going to come out of the gate really hard not all actors are great at it but you know a lot of you know some prefer to go later and you know you have a conversation about it and you try and structure it but I, I just in terms of process I've realized that it's actually really important the way that we approach um, the job in terms of those um, workflow kind of things where, where you're literally talking about the sequence of shots and the order that you shoot things and that has a huge influence. Yeah, the the process thing, like even drawing an analogy with with photography again, is like, um, so my my favorite like carried around everywhere camera is the Fujifilm, the XT three. Mm -hmm. uh, love that camera. They also have like the rangefinders, the the X Pro and the X one hundred, and those and there's awesome. And and I found like you were saying with the rangefinder, people a they think those cameras are film. So I've noticed that there's this weird 
because everything's so immediate now and everyone's under surveillance, which I could go into a big long thing about that. Uh, people get nervous when cameras are around. Cause it's like, Oh, this is yes. going to be on the internet this second. But yeah. when you've got film or a camera that looks like it's film, although that could be ethically dubious depending on what you're doing. But if you're shooting film, uh, people relax. Yeah. And they, and they, they just kind of like, yeah, like at a party or something, you can be snapping yeah. photos and people are more like, ah, unless like, get a fuck away from me, you know? <laughs> Well, that's what I was saying. I mean, uh, literally the, the mechanics of what you've got in front of your face is affecting and it's reflecting back at you with the subject because really all that photograph is is a record of how they feel about you and what you're doing in that moment, right? So uh, you, you can make them uncomfortable or you can make them more comfortable. And I, I always find those, as I say, those kind of rangefinder cameras are just less either threatening or less intimidating or people just have a different kind of reaction to it. They just aren't going to be in the same way. And I think too, because they usually don't have super telephoto lenses. It's not like there's some paparazzi a hundred miles away. You've got to be close. You've got to be at kind of talking conversational distance. And that's a different kind of thing as well. Like all of these things affect, you know, what happens when you put a camera up to your face and they become aware that you're taking a photo, um, you know, the, all of those kind of things. I mean, a lot of the time, it's fun to, you know, if you do three or four in a row, you get the first one where if it's someone who you haven't photographed before, you'll get the first one where they're like suspicious and then they have the fake smile. Oh, I've got, I'm supposed to smile now. And then they kind of don't know what to do or they'll kind of keep on amping it up. So it's funny to sort of look at the sequence of uh, emotions and, and those emotional beats. And then I find usually after a while when you've been doing it, um, you know, one thing I like to do as part of my ritual is when I'm on a show every week, I'll send out a bunch of photos at the end of the week as a way of saying, Hey, remember what we did this week? I'll usually send it to the producers and the heads of department and some of the crew. And, and it's just like a little reminder of the scenes that you did and those moments. And of course you start to become more comfortable once you see the photos and you get this kind of uh, feedback loop, I guess, where people start to um, become more relaxed because they know what the, what the, what the nature of those photos and images are too. So it, it's really interesting again, to talk about that process uh, and having a rhythm and having a routine and, you know, people then know what to expect. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's really important. I mean, that's what slating is half the time. It's like, you know, the acting equivalent uh, of the hundred meter dash when they say on your marks, get set go. It's that all of those kind of rituals uh, are, are triggers or are moments, you know, we've all seen actors drop into character when that happens because that's the sequence. That's the routine. You know? Yeah. Well, and those onset photos are, are oftentimes, a super valuable for um, people trying to learn, like, you know, if they know where that shot was taken, they can look at the lighting and go, oh, OK, I got it. But yeah. also, like, um, I have Jeff Bridges uh, wide luck. No, was it the wide oh, yeah. his, mm -hmm. his coffee table book? And it's like fascinating. Those those moments in between, especially taken by, you know, either a department head such as yourself or, or an actor like yeah. versus the on set publicity photographer who's yeah, well, they're like, there for different, they're there for different reasons. And I mean, some of them are great, but a lot of them time, they, they're mostly focused on what is the poster image? What can I, you know, I've got to get 120 images at the end of the day of the actor. And, you know, then they're not that interested and nor should they be of, of us behind the scenes and so on. So uh, I usually find my photos are useless from a publicity point of view, because they're usually, Actors are in their warming coats or they're not in character or it's a period show, but there's a PA in the background. So I never care about any of that stuff. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to make or do publicity images. It's, it's a little bit more spontaneous. But, yeah, I mean, there are different kind of uh, purposes or outcomes that they're looking for there. Yeah. Uh, it occurs to me that I've, I've interviewed a, a couple uh, Australian DPs, and uh, it does seem to be that Australia 
is incredibly uh, workmanlike when it comes to their artists. It's very mm-hmm. much like just buckle down and do the thing and, and, uh, and maybe not a nonchalance, but like a, um, an ease. There's not, there's not a lot of stress with y'all. And I was wondering how maybe, uh, growing up in Australia changed you as a, or, or, or shaped you as, as a DP or as an artist. Well, it's hard to make generalizations because I, of course, haven't grown up in the U S to compare it to either, but I feel like, uh, in the Australian filmmaking world, we have a lot less resources. So we're much more used to making things work without the proper equipment or without the proper resources. Um, and there's a lot more of a like problem solving mentality. You know, it's like, okay, we don't, I mean, the first time I worked with a technocrat was uh, in the US, I'm pretty sure. Like they are there, but you know, no one can afford to, uh, you know, rent a techno um, routinely. Like here, it's almost like, uh, you know, it's, it's just expected you're going to have a few days on every episode. Whereas I never really thought that I'd ever get to use one when I was working in Australia. So you just find other ways to do those kinds of shots. So I think there's always this kind of problem solving mentality. And honestly, the light is really different as well. Um, so you, you're dealing with a different set of um, conditions and the Australian light is, is really tricky and it's brutal. It's really harsh and hard. And so I think um, I find I have a much more simple, simplified approach, you know, and I think too, the pace that we tend to work at is usually a little bit faster or has been, I mean, nowadays it's different, but certainly when I first came over, I was used to a very fast pace. And it was, it was a quite a difference sort of a slowdown um, because I, I think everyone's used to a lot more equipment, a lot more hardware coming out. And so I'd kind of come up, you know, using less stuff uh, and still trying to, you're obviously still going for a great result uh, and finding that simplification was usually the, the best way to get the best result in the fast, least amount of time. So, you know, I'm quite happy to, um, you know, a lot of the time I rarely will bring lights out on a day um, exterior, whereas, you know, on a big show, you've got all these 18Ks, you could do it if you needed to, but it's like, I never feel the need to, you know, I was just do grip lighting and pull out some bouncer. And that's another big difference, by the way, too. I mean, um, grips only tend to do um, camera moves and camera-related stuff. They don't tend to work in the same way the US grips do. So that's taken me a long time to get used to because now I have to have two conversations about lighting as opposed to in Australia, I'd have one conversation with the gaffer about what lights and what was going to be in front of it and what the end result was going to be. And the grips at most would put a tower up or they, you know, do some, um, a very big, you know, negative if you had to tent, build a tent, but otherwise they don't have anything to do with lighting. You know, it's, it's all with the, with the gaffer. So now I have two departments I've got to kind of manage. So in a way it's good, like, especially if you have a great uh, team, but sometimes that relationship, you know, gets complicated by being, you know, it's like you're in a, this kind of strange threesome all of a sudden, as opposed to just being in a normal one-on-one kind of relationship. So, you know, it can work out and sometimes it's, uh, it blows up as well. Yeah. When, uh, when dealing with that really harsh light or, or even uh, here or there, um, do you have kind of like a, a, maybe not a set lighting pattern because there's no such thing, but like, the way that you approach diffusion and bounce and negative, especially now with more uh, sensitive cameras and stuff. Cause this is something that I've noticed a lot of DPs all have different approaches to like exterior um, sunlight basically. Yeah. I mean, I usually am trying to go a little bit for continuity. Obviously you always want to obey the rules of physics, but I'm also not too beholden to it either. So, you know, I'll, I'll usually, um, I don't know. I mean, it depends on, it depends on the, the the what the scene requires and what it what it looks for who you've got in front 
you know, who, who needs a little bit more help versus who doesn't need a bit more help, that's going to affect the staging and the blocking. So usually you're trying to affect, you've done a location scout, you're trying to choose the time of day that you're there. You're trying to find the aspects that will work for that time of day with the cast that you want to put in that particular location. These are all kind of choices that you're making before you even get to the lighting to set yourself up to succeed if you can. And of course the actors get up, get there, and then they want to do it some other way and over this way and you you're set up to go this way, which is another thing. But um, you know, I think for for day, I mean, honestly, most of the lighting I, I do now, I tend to be more, I think, uh, I don't want to say naturalistic, but more truthful, you know, and more genuine. I don't tend to do stuff that's as polished as I used to try and do when I was younger. Uh, I'm not making sort of Chanel commercials. Um, and uh, it's been interesting because some of the shows I've been on recently are very polished shows with very... Um, A-list actors who come with a huge set of expectations and I've literally had to be like, you know, are you sure you got the right guy here? Because, you know, this is what I'm known for over here and, you know, uh, um, but, you know, I think there's a way to kind of work between pictorialism, that kind of highly stylized work and doing something that's a bit more uh, authentically, naturalistically done and driven. You know, most of the time these days I'm tending to light the space. I try and stage uh, whether that's outdoors or indoors, and I try and stage with the director to take advantage of what that space is with what's going on lighting-wise and what's going on with background and aspects. Um, and then, you know, if you need to help things, then you step in and, and adjust or modify and augment, but you're not fighting what the natural location is and what it wants to do. So that's kind of been my go-to, I guess. It's always fun to step outside of that and challenge yourself and just to bring it back to process, you know, think, okay, well, I'm in a routine and a pattern here. Um, what can I do to shake that up? You know, uh, you know. as I said, I, I love having a manifesto and in a way that can be a, uh, a great way to shake up your own uh, rules. And I kind of got the idea from, uh, if you've ever watched the uh, Lars von Trier doco, the five obstructions, uh, Lars von Trier, it's a great um, uh, example of creative process. You know, I don't know if you know the, know the film, but, you know, he kind of challenges his old film school uh, university lecturer to remake a short film uh, five times over and each time he remakes the film he's going to give him a different set of he calls them obstructions but kind of rules you know what i think the first set of obstructions he, he says okay you have to make it in cuba you know he's he's a danish guy he's never left the country uh, you're gonna make it in cuba and no shot can be longer than half a second 12 frames which is quick because the, the film is all these like very long language single shots and it seems impossible and yet he finds this great solution so i think you know having those kind of self-imposed rules the ridiculous ones even forces you to kind of go okay what is the difference what is the other way i can get around this and problem solve this and you know you can find great solutions uh, if you if you throw away the you know, you can get into a routine uh, uh, and and a kind of stagnation if you just do what worked last time. And if it worked well, then why wouldn't you change it? So you've got to, I think, you know, it's an interesting part of the kind of creative uh, process is to always examine those critically and think, how can I do this differently? What am I what am I doing here as rote? And what do I what do I need to kind of change up or, or alter here to see what's what's new and you're of course always feeding in the new technology and some new led light that's come out and you know and you're always kind of trying to smashing that in together to try and you know use all of those tools for some kind of creative outcome so that, yeah and that, that, this is why i'm still not bored of cinematography you know uh, i haven't really a lot of people are like oh you know you should go into directing i'm like yeah I, I really like making images it's it's actually really fun it's it's something that's incredibly engaging to me yeah, I uh, just 
two things. One, uh, I always try to, on any project, kind of sort of what you're saying is like, I always try, sounds dangerous, but I always just try to test something out. Hmm. You know, like I'll, I'll pick one thing that wouldn't necessarily like ruin the project if it goes yeah. wrong and just yeah. tries, whether it be a piece of gear or a new technique or something I'm like, ah, I'll just try it out. Yeah. Uh, and especially if you're doing gigs that are like, you know, for me, it, it could just be like an interview. Yeah. You know, I'm like, maybe I'll set up just some wacky, uh, you know, establishing shot for this interview and just see if they mm-hmm. like it. And then if they don't, yeah. you're like, all right, whatever, I'm back up. But, you um, do it. Yeah, you, you do. You have to test the waters and, and, and try those, try, try to kind of shake it up a bit and see, see what you're kind of just resting on your laurels and, and, you know, where, where you can kind of improve. And I think, you know, you, you don't always have to know the answers to everything. Like going into a show, it's like, it's good to be scared and uncertain. And half the time I think, you know, you make a risky choice uh, and you're really terrified about it. And then at the end, it's like, I could have done it twice as much. And, it, you know, I should have done it twice as much. I should have done more of it. Like, you know, I always feel like I, I regret not doing uh, not doing more of some kind of risky choice that you take on doing something. So, you know, I think it's it's great to do that. Yeah. Well, and then uh, the the notes, something you had said earlier reminded me of a, a an Adam Savage quote, the guy from Mythbusters, mm-hmm. where he said, uh, you know, I think he was referring to time crunch, but, um, you know, when, when, when things are getting tight, you know, it just, it just hacks a bunch of branches off your decision tree. Yeah. And, th- and that makes things a lot easier. People yeah. could get stressed out by having restrictions put on them, but it, for me, it's like, Oh, the, excellent. I think, it, I think of it as the, uh, trivial pursuit response, you know, nine times out of 10, like you, you know, the answer straight away when, when you have that trivial pursuit, trivia question. And then it's only when you have time to think about it, you talk yourself out of the right answer. I think it's the same thing. Like most of the time. And that's, you know, honestly, when I first started my career, I aspired to shoot movies. I love cinema. I still love going to cinemas. I still love watching movies. Uh, but you know, as I started my career was when TV was really starting to take off and you had, movie actors and movie directors doing big television uh starting to do these big shows just at the time that larger sensors were becoming available for digital cameras and you know all of this was happening uh and now i've made this career that's been more or less in television um but i still um uh find that you know a a new way of approaching those things or, or or different ways of approaching that kind of storytelling um environment is kind of what's what's exciting and what's kind of uh what drives that that interest and and now it's like you know tv is its own kind of form people have kind of come to rely uh come to view it as its own medium and uh, and i think streamers has had a lot to do with that as well because of course you don't have the ads interrupting the rhythm and the flow and so the visual language of television people have got bigger televisions there's 4k televisions now so it's all kind of doing its own thing so yeah it, it's it's very kind of interesting to me to kind of keep on examining those processes and and seeing what it is that you can do to alter that yeah uh a little earlier you had said that you know it, talking to to maybe the higher ups like are you sure you got have the right guy uh <laughs> do, do you do you or did you find that you were like making one thing and then you were trying to get to a different maybe uh part of your career or or you had like a goal in mind and how did you navigate that how did you how did you get yeah i mean to trust funny, you to do something I, you hadn't proved yeah when i was i mean before i went and did my masters you know i was doing a lot of commercials and things but you, there was always i'd never get car ads and there was a guy in the city that i was working in and he got all the car ads and there's another guy who got all the food ads you know and it's funny how people get this idea it's like well you know have they done cars do they know how to shoot a car and i feel like 
you know, as a cinematographer, you you should be able to shoot anything, right? You should be able to put your mind to doing something in a way that's kind of interesting. But there's a lot of conservatism for all of the fact that we love to think that we're edgy and that we take chances. Most producers do not. They mm-hmm. think they do, but they don't. And it's even more so. I mean, the funny thing is, is that actually as budgets go up, there's even more conservatism and more um, uh, concern about whether you're going to be able to do the right job or, you know, be the right person. Um, and actually, even though you've got more money, there's got, it actually comes with more, even more expectations. So, you know, it doesn't really change that, that coming from low budget. In fact, um, it's really nice and refreshing to sometimes be on a low budget film. Like I, like I was just recently um, where you don't have the same kind of degree of oversight because you've only got a couple of million bucks and it's like more people aren't as kind of nervous about it. Uh, you know, I mean, honestly, most of the TV that I'm doing these days, it's five million plus per episode uh, and it's only sort of 45 minutes. So, you know, uh, going back to what you, your question was, yeah, I mean, originally I, I always thought I would kind of end up doing films and that's where I wanted to go. And I have gradually morphed into really loving doing television. And I love the, the form itself. I love the complexity of it. I love that it can be, multi-seasons I, th- I think of you know a good movie is like reading some kind of in-depth vanity fair article and it's glossy and it's great uh, and a tv series is like a novel you know you've got all these chapters you've got this extra complexity i mean they're different enjoyable for different reasons uh but you know i, I love the amount of story arc you can get and it doesn't have to be this idea of a of a hero's journey of a single character i think television can be multi-character and it can be more complex and i, I think those are really interesting um, uh, storytelling, like, you know, modes to, to deal with. And I, I mean, I still obviously enjoy doing movies, but yeah, I've really come to love the form of television and also what it takes to make that, you know, in terms of the pace and the complexity, especially when you're looking after multiple units uh, and multiple episodes and working with other cinematographers as well. Uh, and it becomes this kind of huge machine. I think, that, again, that's where that process kind of thing comes into it as well. Yeah. The, it, it, I feel like recently I was kind of bemoaning the fact that escapism was undervalued, that pe- people were trying too hard to make things that like people want to feel. I, I can't I can't attribute this quote to anyone, but someone was saying um, <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but someone was saying uh, everyone wants to talk about um, being uh, not involved, but like uh, being engrossed. What was the correct word? Basically, just just being sucked into a film. Uh, like suspension of disbelief. And it's like, you don't, you don't want that because if, if you were there, if someone got murdered on screen, you would be horrified. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be uh, completely immersed. We're not looking for immersion. We're looking for, you know, not distraction, but like, like fantasy, you know, you, you yeah. know, you're watching a film. Yeah. And I think television is actually starting coming around and starting to be that because people want to live in these, fantastical places on you know show, 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 uh example being like mandalorian or going farther yes. back you know sopranos or, or breaking bad or whatever even though those are terrifying shows uh people want to live with those characters for much longer than yeah. film and films totally. and you know I, it's funny uh I, I i feel like um you know having done shows like i've come in uh, i've done shows over a couple of seasons i've come in on a on a later season of a show that's already established it's like, you know, most people have a favorite restaurant and at their favorite restaurant, they usually have a favorite meal and they go to the restaurant 
And every now and then they'll try the other thing, but they like the lasagna at that restaurant. They want to go there every few weeks or every month or two, and they want to have the lasagna. I think good television is kind of the same. You have an expectation of what you're going to get and what you want. You don't mind it if they mess around with it a little bit. Maybe there's a different chef that week. They season it a bit. But you don't want to take it off the menu. You don't want to change things too much. And that's always something to be cognizant of when you're doing multi-seasons of a show. Is like you don't want to totally depart and go somewhere else because people will be like, you know, this restaurant's gone downhill. Like since that guy left last year, the season's just terrible so um you know i think fine dining is a, is a great experience and maybe that's what the again that's the analogy of, of what featured film movies are but when you're actually going somewhere regularly it's okay to have the same thing and in fact <coughs> it's a it's almost a kind of a lesson to like be okay with doing you know it's funny like sometimes you're on a, a long-running show and they're like what what ha-? you know directors will come in it's like which, which angle haven't you shot yet and it's like it's okay to go back to those angles. It's okay to do that because the, you know, the, it's, it's a different mode of storytelling. And I, I do think that expectation of what, you know, that when Kramer comes through the door, he's always going to do that thing. Like the, it becomes something that is expected and that's, it's okay to have that happen. You know, and I think that's, that's one of the differences with between television, uh, even in a streaming cinematic form that it is now and, you know, cinema going movies. So, you know, I, I think that it, just be aware of it and then, you know, lean into it. It's fun to play with that too. Yeah. Well, and uh, something that I don't think anyone really talks about, because, you know, we're well past the whole, like, you're either a DP for movies or you're a DP for television. Now it's, you know, completely cross-contaminated, cross-contaminated, cross-mojinated, I guess. But uh, the job security has got to be nice. (laughs) Yeah. You're on a project (laughs) for longer than. (laughs) It is. It it is and it isn't. It can be hard slog. You know, some of those longest shows that, you know, it's 10 months uh, and you feel like, I mean, on some of those shows, you're there, you're there. I mean, the directors are coming every three weeks. Um, The ADs are switching out every three weeks. You're aside from number one on the call sheet, maybe you're the one that's there every day, you know, uh, depending on the show, but it can be a lot, Um, you know, and it's hard. Like when you're being asked to return to a show and to do a second season, that's one of the questions is like, can I go back for 10 months and give it my all into something I've already kind of done. Is it worth the investment of a year of my life by the time you sort of, you know, factor in having some time off and, you know, in between shows, like it's a year, you know, that's what you're talking about investing in something. And if you've already done a season, it's like, I'm like, what am I going to get? Am I going to get frustrated? Am I going to be able to find enough to get out of this? So, you know, those are really pertinent kind of questions, I think too. Yeah. And so you were saying that uh, Lakewood is a, it was a lower budget film. Yeah, so uh, they probably won't like me talking about it, but I mean, like, it's a low-budget film, and you do have Philip Noyce directing it. You've got Naomi Watts acting in it, so on the surface, it would seem like a kind of a big movie, but it's truly an indie movie, you know, in in terms of the way it was financed. And at the time that we made it, it was also the height of COVID. You know, it was I think I'm trying to remember when we shot it was like July, August. I mean, they literally oh, just figured out the. Um, the whole COVID protocols and and it was seemed like a perfect script because the premise is about a woman who uh, essentially is um, jogging in a forest. She she starts off the day um, leaving her son and you think you know he's uh, he's a brooding teenager and you find out her it's the anniversary of the father or her husband's uh, death and passing and you're not really sure of the circumstances but maybe that's why the son's angry. Um, she's on the phone a lot. And then eventually there's a, a, like a school shooting that happens. She gets an anger alert, but it's all fine because the son's at home, except she finds out that the son isn't at home and that his car's at the school. 
maybe he's involved and then you know she's trying to it's kind of a thriller you know she's trying to work out where she should be but the the interesting thing is it's actually written by um the same writer of the film very chris um Spalling, who uh, who's uh, had that film that you know where you had a character who's in a coffin, wakes up in a coffin, and he's got a lighter and a phone, and the whole movie's inside a coffin. It's similar kind of DNA you can see here because you've got a woman who's running in a forest alone for most of the movie, and she's on the phone. You hear the other side of the calls, but you never leave her uh, mm. in that moment. So we had more or less one actor each day. Um, we're in a forest. We shot it in uh, northern Ontario, which I think when we were there, they'd had six cases of COVID total. Um, so it was a pretty, pretty um, uh, good place and a good way to work because we were outdoors and so on with all of the masking. We all had the you know face shields and all of that, which uh, we were all kind of dealing with for the first time. But so in some ways, it was uh, it was a little bit of a pilot uh, or a test run of the kind of COVID protocols. It was a low-budget film. We had a very small crew, um, mostly daylight dependent. Uh, and actually, the film had a lot of challenges because you've got a character who's jogging, running, walking fast at the least most of the film. And she starts off on a road, uh, and then she's on a dirt road, and then she's onto tracks, and then she's onto little goat trails in the woods, and then she's literally in the forest in the middle of with no tracks, you know. Um, and so... It, the film kind of plays as real time. So when you start thinking about how to shoot that, it, it really is challenging because like, what are you going to use to be able to keep up with her um, when some of the takes are 15 minutes long and she's going to run a few miles? Oh, wow. um, you know, what are you going to use that can keep up with her that isn't going to make sound? Uh, so you can record her acting uh, and doing all the sound because you're not going to be able to cut away to you know what the other so you know it starts becoming a real challenge and especially in the in the environment you know it, it was really kind of interesting for that so it was sort of deceptively complicated uh, and also ambitious really considering it, it, it's a low budget indie movie you know that that we were trying to do um, we actually shot it in a very short amount of time it was it was shot in 13 work days and remember oh, wow with canada we went there, we had to quarantine for 14 days. So it actually was shot in one day less than the quarantine that the director and I and Naomi were in <laughs> to do the movie as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was a very, it was a very tight schedule and Naomi was amazing because um, she was in training for before this and she ran us all into the ground. You know, I had some uh, um, uh, grips and some electrics trying to keep up with her holding bounces and lights and, you know, she, she would run them all off um, without a problem. You know, um, <laughs> Every now and then you'd be you'd be filming, we'd be on the back of a trekking vehicle or something, and you'd sort of see a grip dive into the bushes because they just couldn't pick <laughs> up with the jogging after a while. And uh, you know, I think she was doing like I think she got I'm trying to remember, but she she got down to like almost um, you know, she could go to the Masters games and be a medal contender kind of times on her on her miles. So she 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 was super fit and uh, she showed us all up as well, that's for sure. We were all needing physio and the therapy after uh, after doing it. But yeah, it was it was a very, very challenging film in that regard. Uh, but a lot of fun to try and come up with those kind of solutions, um, you know, to to be able to work that out. Yeah. What sort of like um sort of bigger budget tools or techniques were you having to augment to use on, on a lower budget sort of indie film? Well, um, you know, there were, there were lots of differences in terms of drama with what we wanted. So, you know, Philip, um, he loves some handheld, he loves Steadicam. We used a combination of all of those tools. I found some great local um, crew and like uh, great local operators. And also we, uh, we um, came up with some pretty unique sort of solutions. So, um, the Ari had just come out with the stabilized remote head at the time. I don't know if you know that. It's like uh, Ari's Trinity. Yeah. 
it's like a Trinity, yeah, but they made a kind of remote head version of the Trinity that you could um, mount. So we, we came up with a way of rigging that on an electric uh, motorcycle. And we just so happened to have a grip who was a very experienced uh, uh, motocross, um, like he'd won awards and, and medals and stuff for motocross. So he was a very good off-road um, motorcyclist. We had this electric bike and on the back of it, we were able to mount um, the ARRI SRH, which is a very inexpensive techless head. Like it doesn't really require the same degree of support. Like a lot of remote heads have a full-time tech and it was, it was a very simple sort of head. But the great thing I love about it is it's very small and lightweight. So, you know, when we're trying to like literally weave in and out of trees and so on, when you have a small head uh, and a small camera package, we used, um, we, we actually tested the uh, Alexa Mini uh, at the beginning, uh, but honestly the budget was so low that we realized that we could get four um, of the Blackmagic uh, 12K bodies for the same price as one Alexa Mini. And because we knew that we couldn't, I mean, we're doing 10 hour days, but knew that Naomi wasn't going to be running the whole time. Uh, so we got a few picture doubles. We actually had three picture doubles that we could work with. So often what we do is a take with Naomi and then we'd let her rest and we'd do a double that would, you know, maybe do shots that you can recognize. So it'd be the follows and the, you know, details of feet and so on. Um, and by having those multiple cameras, it meant that sometimes we could split those units off. They could go and do some drone work or they could go and do some um, insert work uh, while we were shooting with Naomi. Uh, as well. So that just gave us a lot more flexibility. And we also assumed that we probably need some stabilization. So the extra resolution uh, helped a little bit there. And honestly, just the, the smaller size and, and being able to afford four of them for the kind of price of uh, of one uh, one Alexa, you know, was a big part of it. And Philip was actually, you know, um, very interested in, and, and you know, honestly, I, I, I usually do this for most shows. We did a blind test. Um, I shot some stuff with the 12K. I shot some stuff with the Alexa. We actually screened it in the local cinema uh, in North Bay, which is where we were shooting in Northern Ontario, uh, and um, had it up on the big screen with the producers and the director. And everyone actually liked that what the 12K looked like the most. That was what was actually people responded to the most. So it was a, it was pretty easy. And we also knew that with the extra resolution, we could do some you know punch ins if we, we could either stabilize or maybe we could you know, reframe if we're not going to get a lot of takes uh, out of Naomi because she's jogging. Uh, maybe you could kind of resize and, you know, have a kind of a longer shot turn into a more of a medium shot. I'm never much of a fan of doing that, to be honest. I've been burned by that sort of thing. But, you know, at least it was a potential option if you had to. And in the end, actually, I don't think we ended up needing to do that too much. But, you know, that was that was another thought that was in our head. So there was lots of reasons to, to choose that camera. But, yeah, principally, we could have four for the price of one. It gave us the extra resolution we might need for some stabilizing and, and shot uh, resizing. Um, it was physically smaller than an Alexa Mini, especially for long handheld takes for me. That's what I preferred as well. It also meant going on the head. It was a lighter weight camera on the head um, um, and made everything just a little bit easier to kind of work with. So, you know, there, there were lots of reasons. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it, it worked out really well. And, um, you know, I actually haven't seen the final, final result on the big screen but uh philip was at the premiere at uh tiff at toronto international film festival he said it looked amazing you know it was on a giant screen there was a big audience and he said it went down very well so what was your uh so i assume if you were planning on stabilization and stuff you were maybe shooting a little wider than you expected 
A little bit. I mean, <clears throat> in the end, actually, what happens is, of course, is it's quite hard to stabilize a shot that's moving all the time, you know, especially if it's forest and things like that. So uh, you, you're actually not tending to be able to use it as much as you think you can once you start actually being in that environment. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think we really changed the framing mentality. It wasn't like we were expecting it to happen, but we thought, well, maybe it'll help us if we if we're really up against it for a certain moment. If we had a big bump or something that goes through, which did happen, you know, sometimes you get little potholes in the roads or bumps and jerks and things, and it sort of helps smooth those uh, a lot of those things out. But I mean, I was actually so amazed and. The crew were really good. Like none of them had really worked with any of those black magic cameras before, but they, um, in good faith, uh, took them on and they worked, you know, very well and very reliably. And uh, and we got some really really pretty results. I, I'm really hopeful that uh, that they'll do a trailer soon. I think the film actually has uh, sold now, so hopefully we'll see a trailer for it soon. Yeah. Um, what was your lens package there? Because even with such a high resolution sensor, it's still a super 35 sensor, but that's that's a lot right. of detail. So were you trying to like combat that with the lens choices or are you trying to keep it pretty clean? Uh, it's funny. I mean, uh, uh, when the camera first came out, I mean, my first instinct as well was like, oh my gosh, like what kind of lens do you need to use with this? But here's, and you know, let me tell you about a conversation I had with uh, Naomi's hair and makeup people, because when they heard the 12K number, yeah, uh, yeah you know, because, <laughs> like, wait, you're going to put this camera at one foot from her face. And, uh, you know, she's a beautiful woman, but, you know, she's of a certain uh, vintage. And, of course, everyone wants them wants uh, wants to look the best they can for the circumstances of the show uh, and the film. Um, and we wanted to be able to look after her. And that was going to be a challenge as well. Because I mean, for a while I was looking at maybe I can have, like, um, just an inflatable cloud um, mm-hmm. head. You know, it's like maybe I can the attach mattress. those. Yeah, exactly. I could have an air mattress attached to the vehicle and drive along and, and use that to protect her. But it's like, that's pretty bad when you get into a forest with trees. And you know. so I, I was, you're kind of going through all these different scenarios. But anyway, um, the funny thing is, is that when you when you have that kind of resolution, it actually the opposite happens. It, it's almost like the structure or the, or the pixels disappear and it becomes in a way more flattering, especially because I think because they're quite small and there's so many of them, it, it, it's sort of, uh, it's interesting, you know, um, you, like I've never seen a lens with, with resolution because it doesn't really work that way. Yes, you can use vintage lenses, but what I found is it's not that they soften things. All that happens with the 12K camera, if you put vintage lenses on there is you can sort of see the faults more obviously. They, it, be, they be, it becomes more transparent. Um, the camera sort of sees more detail. So therefore it tends to see more of the aberrations that disappear maybe on a lower resolution format. So I personally think it does look better with a with a better performing lens, a more modern lens. I mean, I'm a big fan of using vintage objects. I love it, but I think for this particular camera, it performs its best with modern lenses. So we end up using uh, Zeiss Supremes. And uh, funny, I just recently uh, for the show I'm doing now, I just did a test where I compared Zeiss Supremes and the newer Panavision Panaspeeds, which are their kind of large format um, lenses that are quite quite new. Um, they're post uh, Primo 70s. They've just, just sort of been shipping those recently. And they're both very different lenses, very pretty uh, lenses in their own way. But I noticed with the Zeiss Supremes, they do fall off very quickly. And I, I realized that when I was first shooting with the 12K and the Supremes that I thought it was the sensor because it sort of has this almost a large format look is how I would describe it. But I actually think that's more to do with the lenses. Now that I've compared them with the Panaspeeds, even at the same focal length, same aperture, I would have thought 
they wouldn't they would kind of be the same in terms of how they fall off but actually the, the supremes are beautiful in the way they fall off and they fall off quite quickly and, uh, and i feel like that lends a bit of a large format look so i feel like the supremes are a very good match for the 12k i've, I've shot them a few times and, and they work really well so yeah so we principally shot with the 12k um camera with the with the zeiss supremes there's a few shots in there where we had an Optimo 24 to 290 as well for some very uh, long lens uh, shots as well, uh, which worked out. But yeah, probably 80% of the film is, is isoprams. I, uh, I, I 100% agree with you. I So I have the large format camera and uh, I primarily will shoot Nikkor primes on it because I have a Nikon F2. So I was like, oh, here we yeah. go. Easy enough. And I, and yeah, same thing, you know, a uh, uh, really nice, you know, like a Sigma 35, the really sharp, pretty lenses pop it down to a one eight and it looks great. But, um, the, the Nikkor's just that fall off is a lot prettier and does tend to, I think you're hundred percent right. There are certain lenses that lend itself to that look that I think people ascribe to large format, even though anyone who's read or watched Steve Yedlin's diatribes on the subject should know that is a fallacy. Uh, it is yeah. in the lensing. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you know, I recently, I, I just shot, uh, uh, the second season of the morning show and we had an inherited choice there of the, of the DXL two, which is kind of really, I've tested large format. Um, I really like the idea of it, but every time I've tested it, I haven't really seen enough of a visual difference, um, for it to be worthwhile for me. Mm. Uh, not that I think it's faddish or anything. I wouldn't say that, but I, it's never been a, a, a thing I wanted to, you know, really reach out and do. So it's interesting at the moment, I'm starting a, a new series with uh, Rene Zellweger limited crime series here in New Orleans. And, um, I'm very interested in large format for this only because we're going to be in, um, smaller locations. We're going to be, um, in really tight spaces. And I do think one of the few times that you're going to see those kind of differences with some of those wider focal lengths, um, if you're trying to get separation and so on, it's the only time I think that large format maybe starts to make sense. So, you know, I'm like, okay, okay, I'll give it a try now. So this will be my first time choosing to shoot large format, but I've kind of resisted. I mean, I, I think Super 35 is a great mix for most of the, most situations of kind of giving you nice focus separation and depth of field, but you also have the option of, of having more in focus. And actually I prefer the lenses. Most of the time, Super 35 lenses are much smaller. There's a lot more variety in choice. Once you go to large format, it actually forces you to go to these big, giant, heavy, expensive, complicated lenses as well. So you know, that's, that hasn't been fun either. I mean, zooms are still really, really lacking, you know, in, in large format, good cinema zooms as well. Um, not that I shoot much and I tend to be primed, but still, you know, it's one of those kind of main and you get all these kind of expanded or converted zooms, but now they're like 5.8, you know, zooms. It's just, they're, they're super slow and big. And yeah, I, I haven't really been that enthusiastic in, until now. I'm going to, I'm going to give it a try. Check back in with me in six months. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, it, the, the, having your lenses um, narrowed down so much is something I've noticed is a problem. Like clients going like, Oh, we want to shoot full frame. I'm like, great. Got that. And they're like, and we want to shoot cooks. And I'm like, no, you don't. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be more than the camera. Um, yeah. And also the water monsters, giant lenses on the front, like they're huge, you know? Yeah. But the one thing I will say that the large format has been nice is the few times I've been able to play around with um, uh, anamorphics, that extra <laughs> height that you get on the sensor really yeah. lends you a lot more um, detail and, and it really pulls out the character of those lenses. Yeah. And it's a very, it's a very pretty image in that regard. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, that, that hour fucking flew by. We, we got to wrap it up, but, um, I would love to have you back on, uh, maybe in six months when you're <laughs> maybe in the middle of that or something, but, uh, oh, 
Yeah, but I, I like to end every uh, interview with um, the same two questions. Uh, first one being, um, do you recall maybe a piece of advice that you were given that has stuck with you um, maybe throughout your career? Maybe it was recent, but uh, that you think would help others. And also, uh, can you recommend a movie that you think people should check out besides obviously yours? <laughs> um, I would say I'm trying to remember the right way to phrase this, but, you know, it goes to what we were saying before about that idea of having a manifesto or making making rules you know don't be afraid to make mistakes and try try things out and test things out and, and make your own path and make your own choices you know back your own instincts um test those things out and try them out you know it's it's you don't have to um it, it's good to be informed about what others are doing and how other techniques are, but there's 10 different ways to get to the end results. So, you know, make your own and find your own. I think that's, that's what's interesting about what we do as a, as a process and as a, as a creative kind of process. Um, and sorry, what was your last one? Oh, a film. Um, God, golly, you're putting me on the spot. What have I seen recently that I really enjoyed? Um, it's funny uh, looking at, uh, you know, whenever you start a new project, um, you, you start going through old films to look at what's, um, uh, what might be relevant, you know, just doing kind of visual research. And I rewatched uh, I, Tonya just recently. Oh. And it's such a good movie. It's not that old, but um, it's such a well put together and such a good looking movie um, for a film that is, um, you know, veering into kind of naturalism and documentary um, mentalities in terms of the way it's shot. And yet it has such a great cinematic and very well-crafted look. So I, I really appreciated that just recently. I, um, it's a big influence on what I'm about to start now. Well, uh, like I said, this was a, a lot of fun. Um, I would love to have you back on next time you're free. We, we have each other's email now. So if you, if you have Fair something enough. new to say, please uh, hit me up and we'll, we'll get yes, it done. Tony, feel free to uh, check back in and uh, it's been very enjoyable. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. Right on. Frame and reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the FDR Mapbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>